we start to see him all around and all the different ways that he works in our lives. And um, one of the first places I think that it, we start to see his work is we start to see how he's blessed us through other people. Um, and, uh, you know, there was an acknowledgement of the teachers today. Um, that, that, uh, that is very much uh, the, a, a, a central biblical call is to train up the next generation. And um, that can't be, we, we can't underestimate together, and we know this, how valuable and how important that role is. Another one of those roles that I, all week has been on my heart, actually for about, for about a month, has really been on my heart to just acknowledge this again in a worship service. And that's that we have people, um, Betty Hendrickson uh, leads, uh, helps us with the, the people who pray during the service. There's people who pray during the service. And, you know, that, there's so many people who pray. We're a house of prayer. That's what we do. We pray in all sorts of different ways throughout the week. And, um, but there, there's that one time, there's that story about um, Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers in recent history. And they saw great revivals taking place at his church. And when people came and asked him, how is it that every week we see that, uh, those kind of things happening in people's life? And he took them downstairs into the basement. And he opened up the door. And there was people down on the floor praying, worshiping the Lord. And he said, that's how. And people thought that it was because he was a good uh, preacher or something. And, you know, he's a gifted man, but he said, anything that the Lord's doing is because people are seeking his face. And so there are those who regularly pray during the services. And anytime that we find our hearts touched by the Lord, all credit goes to the Lord. And then we also need to thank the Lord for those who are laboring on our behalf so that we can receive the word of God. And so I just want to acknowledge that again and thank the Lord for those of you who, um, who pray and, and get behind uh, the work of the Lord. So um, we have, uh, our topic today is idolatry and worship. You know, this series, the point is, is to show what's it supposed to look like in the kingdom of God? What are the sins that we kind of start to uh, become, become a norm in culture? And then how do we bring that back to the Lord and say, God, cleanse us? And so worship is the culture that God has for us. But idolatry, we very easily and naturally slip into in culture. Um, uh, what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to have a stand and read the scripture at the beginning here. And then we're going to go into a time of prayer. And um, I'm just really going to ask that in our prayer that you would invite the Lord to speak how he wants to speak today. And the, the reason I, I think that's really important today is because the, talking about the topic of idolatry and worship is kind of like saying I'm preaching a message about God today. I mean, it's the entire Bible from cover to cover talks about worship and idolatry. So the specifics of what the Lord wants to speak to us is really important about that. There's no way that we can exhaustively cover that topic today. As a matter of fact, all the other topics in this series have to do with idolatry and worship. So... Um, I'm going to read this scripture, and then we're going to go into a time of prayer. And I would ask that you would pray along with me, that the Lord would just speak his specific words to us, that he would kind of guide me in this teaching through what he wants to speak, okay? So you can stand with me. We're going to read, actually, from 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to go to that one, okay? I have two texts we're going to be working from. One is 1 Corinthians 10, the other is Exodus 32. And you'll see this refers back to Exodus, this... um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud 
and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That phrase right there is from Exodus 32. We'll get back to that a little later. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Please join me in prayer. God, the purity of worship, the picture of uh, the book of Revelation when we hear the voice of the multitude crying out to you, when the 24 elders fall down and, the, and uh, the, we see the, the great creatures rising and praising you and we see the angels all worshiping you. We realize that's our destiny. That's our call. That's who you've made us to ultimately be. Those who minister to you and flow with you. But we also realize that um, there's not one of us who can stand in front of your presence and say, that's who we are and that's what we've done perfectly. We are weak. And our wills are weak and our hearts get divided and our minds get distracted because we want what we want at times and we pursue that. And God, collectively, as a body, as a church body right now, we just want to say that's not what we want for our lives and not what we want for our church. What we desire is for you to to continue to lead us to a place where we have an undivided heart, where we are fully worshiping you. And you know how to lead us into that, God. You're the one who knows how to lead us into that. So God, we just ask that, that today, in this time here, with the time that we do have, that you would hone in on what it is that you want to speak to each one of us, God. And we ask that you would speak clearly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. So I want to, um, I want to do a little more teaching probably than preaching today. You know the difference between teaching and preaching. Uh, preaching is when I get really fired up and I get excited. Um, and, uh, it, but, but teaching usually is about trying to get information to us, not just to swell our spirits, um, uh, but it's also about trying to get information to shape the way we think. And um, so I, part of this, I just want to talk through together the topic of idolatry and worship and, and kind of wrestle with that a little bit to understand it a little bit more. And uh, to do that, I'm going to first ask us to get to in sort of a, a place of thoughtfulness. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to read some quotes from 
Christians, uh, Christian authors and thinkers, and I'm going to read a few quotes, and I'm just going to ask us to, to get quiet and to think about it. I'm going to try to pause between them and let us think a little bit for a while about those, and then we'll go back into um, to the word and teaching. So I, I actually want to invite you to close your eyes and to just listen, to meditate on these. So the first one is from someone named Renee Swope. She's a, 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 a Christian radio. You might have heard this quote actually on the radio. I think I've heard it on Christian radio before. So you can just listen to this. Good intentions get challenged because we tend to forget every yes requires a no to something else. When we say yes to getting up early, we have to say no to staying up late the night before. If we say yes to losing a few pounds, we have to say no to that high-calorie candy bar. A.W. Tozer. Christ calls men to carry a cross. We call them to have fun in his name. He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them that if they but accept Jesus, the world is their oyster. He calls them to suffer. We call them to enjoy the burgeois comforts modern civilization affords. Vance Havner. What our Lord said about cross-bearing and obedience is not in fine type. It's in bold print. Bill Bright. Every day, I find countless opportunities to decide whether I will obey God and demonstrate my love for him or try to please myself or the world system. Oswald Chambers. Discouragement comes when we insist on having our own way. Richard Rohr. Faith is so rare and religion so common because no one wants to live between first base and second base. Faith is the in-between space where you're not sure you'll make it to second base. You've let go of one thing and haven't yet latched onto another. Most of us choose the security of first base. And the last one is from Bill Hybels. It's so much easier for us to change God than it is to conform to his will. Thanks. Idolatry uh, and worship. Worship has, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, um, there's two main words in Hebrew and two main words in Greek for worship. And there's actually many more words than that, but uh, in, in those two languages and throughout the text, those two are the ones that are used the most in, in their respective languages. In Hebrew, the, first, uh, the, the, the word that's used the most, used all the time throughout the Old Testament for worship, and what I mean by that, let me explain that just a little bit, is that when, you read in our, in our, when we read in our English Bible the word worship, it's not necessarily every time we read it, it's the same word behind it. 
Okay, there might be different words that are translated into what we read in English, worship. There's at least four different words that we read regularly, and it all looks like worship to us. And yet there's different words behind that. Okay, and so what we're doing, what I want to try to do here is to just describe those four words so that we get a more full understanding of what worship actually is. Okay, so the first word, which is all across the pages of the Old Testament, is called saha, S-A-H-A-H, to bow down or to weigh down or to cause to bow down. So the whole, and this is the one that's used the most all across the Old Testament. What does it mean to worship? It means to bow down or to be caused to bow down, you know, or to weigh down. Like, as, like, just picture, like, something way too heavy gets put on us, and then, boom, we go down. That's the, the picture of worship, the, the most commonly used word for worship in the Old Testament. Then the second word is called daras, D-A-R-A-S. And daras means to seek or to inquire, to seek after. And you, you find this in the Old Testament where it talks about worshiping the Lord. It says, seek him with all your heart. That's worship him with all your heart. Pursue him. Desire him. Inquire of him. Look to him. And so one is prostration, going down, humbling, coming low. And the other is seeking after, pursuing. Those are the Old Testament words. There's a couple other words that get, that get translated into worship, but most of the other words that get translated into worship get translated into a whole bunch of other words too, and they're not as apropos. Um, then in the New Testament, you switch to the New Testament, and in, in the Greek language, there's another two words. The first one that's used most of the time, almost a big chunk of the time, is this word, I have a hard time saying it, proskinio, proskinio. And I won't even spell that for you. And uh, I'm going to read the definition here. It's to do reverence or homage by kissing the hand or by prostration, to pay divine homage, to adore, to bow down, or to fall down. This word is similar to the first word in the Old Testament that has that bowing down, falling down, but it also is like kissing a hand prostration, and adoration. This is, of course, what you're going to picture um, in that Greek language. They're picturing like Caesar, and people come before Caesar, and they humble themselves before the king. They kiss his ring, and they get low, and they kind of say, the king, you know, and they worship. There's like a, there's an adoration, and we kind of get that in America still with the like celebrity worship, but it's much bigger than that. Because it has all this authority. It's not just, oh, those people are cool or something. It has huge authority in it, the king, you know? And there's this getting low and paying respect to. So that's the, that's the word proskinio. And, then, um, and, then, and, and that's kind of like a state of submission, a state of honoring and submission, getting low. And then the second one is latro, okay? And this is interesting one. This is to be a servant to, and specifically religious servant. So do you remember when Jesus as a baby was brought into the temple and there was that woman, Anna, who was there? And it says that she worshiped the Lord day and night is what it says. And that's this word here, that she served the Lord day and night. She ministered religiously to the Lord day and night. In other words, she was praying all the time. And she was looking to the Lord and she was in his presence and she was walking around the temple taking care of things. Her whole attitude was like tending to God and his stuff. Beautiful picture. 
this woman. Beautiful, beautiful picture. All of these things are, give us a picture of worship. So what is worship when it comes to God? Maybe you've heard before, worth-ship. It comes from, that's where it comes from, worth. We're showing God's worth, which means he's God and I'm not. And my response to him is I get low. And that's not get low to like false humility of acting like I'm low. It's remembering that I'm low. There's a big difference between acting like I'm low and remembering. Because remembering is based on reality. Acting is based on a falsehood. Worship starts with understanding the reality. That's what worship starts with. Beholding God. When we behold God, what happens is, is we end up responding. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's because one day, everyone will behold him. And when we behold him, we will have no choice but to respond and react. And when we encounter God, When our eyes are open, when the veil is torn, and when we behold him and when we see him, there is a response. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we understand this. It says that we now, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, and therefore we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Something happens to us when we see God and we respond. Now, what these words tell us about worship is it says that We are servants of God, that we come down and minister to him. It also means that we adore him and we seek him and we want to know him. There's a part of us that might say, well, if worship is about getting low and serving and all of that, why in the world would I want to worship? Why would I want to submit myself as a servant to someone else? Like, doesn't it make a whole lot more sense for me to just like kind of take care of me instead of why would I want to submit to someone else? And there's only one answer that I know of that's just like baseline for that is it's what's true. And what I mean by that is like I was created and there's a creator. If I try to live in the falsehood and the self-deception of I don't need to worship, then I'm not dealing with reality and it will catch up to me. Whenever we live in deception, it catches up to us. Worship is our response to the reality of who God is and who he created us to be. And so we are created to be ministers to him, servants of his. And and when we realize and when we remember together that God is good and that God is God, then our response should be this. I want desperately to know God and to know his ways because I am created to fit underneath of him and within his ways. And so I am hungry to know the reality of this God because as I know him and as I submit to his will, he's the designer of my life. He is the God. He's the loving father. He's the caregiver. He's the lover of my soul. He's everything I need. And when I see that and I respond appropriately, I come into a posture of worship where I say, I'm not in charge of my life. You're in charge of my life. So I want to know what you want and I want to serve and submit to that. That is worship. 
That's what it looks like to worship. Now, there's different ways that worship expresses herself. When, when Corey's up here and he's singing and the Simons are over there and playing and the music is going and we're, we're coming together for the purpose of acknowledging God, something can swell within us. And we can have that moment where we're remembering together who God is and there's an emotional thing that starts to happen in us and coming out of our mouth becomes praises, which praises are a form of worship. They're part of worship. But there's another part that, that right after we pray, Corey, after the first verse, calls and says, hey, ushers, come forward. <laughs> you know? And the ushers came forward, and when they did, we had another act of worship, which is to give of our tithes and offerings to God. A primary act of worship. One of the ones that's been there for for long, long time, from the beginning. You remember Cain and Abel and the whole struggle over their, their offering to God. That wasn't sacrifice and atonement for sin initially that they're thinking of. Like, when we want to give something to God, a thanks, a thanks offering, you know, we, we want to give worship, and then there's, but then there's also the, the sacrificial side, which, of course, is Jesus, the Lamb. But when we give of our tithe and offering, that's an act of worship. And, and when I choose in my life, there's this stuff that I really want to do, but God has asked me to do this. And I give up this in order to obey God and submit to this. That is a very special moment of worship. When we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, wholly acceptable to him. This is our pleasing act of worship. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Whenever we give of what's ours to God in response to who he is because he's God and I'm his servant and I want to trust him and follow him and submit to him, it's a tender place of worship. It's a tender place where we have to trust. That one quote about faith is the place where you're stuck between first base and second base, you know, and you're like, I don't know, I I might get caught in a pickle here, you know, um, and, and because we're, we're right in the middle and we don't know whether we're going to quite make it to second base and whether God's going to take care of us. And so he said that lots of times we choose the security of staying put in the tangible, what I know. But he calls us out and he calls us to come follow him. Worship starts with the understanding that all things exist by God and all things exist for God. And we are submitting ourselves to that reality. And we're trusting him. And therefore, we're submitting to his way and not my way. That is worship. Imagine with me the culture of worship. Imagine what it looks like when a whole culture of people, a whole culture of people, if our greatest desire was to know God and to submit to God and to follow God. Imagine if each one of us in this room, imagine if each one of us, if God just cleansed us this quick and got us undivided hearts, I mean, I feel no shame in this, in this sense. I mean, no, no judgment between us. There isn't one of us who's completely pure, right? I mean, there isn't any of us. We all struggle with idolatry all over the place. But imagine if God brought complete clarity to our hearts and we lived in the reality that God is everything I want and need. And my aim in life, my desire in life, in every aspect, all the time, was just to seek God and to honor God. And imagine if that was true, not just for me and not just for you, but for all of us. What would life look like? Can you imagine what the culture would look like 
if that was the case. And we get a little glimpse in that Acts chapter 2 thing where it says that they were just worshiping the Lord. They were meeting together all the time and they were sharing everything and they were flowing because they were filled with awe and wonder and God was doing amazing things. And it says they worshiped daily all the time. And they were just, something very special was happening in that moment in the birth of the church. Very, very special. Where there was kind of an undivided moment where everybody was just seeking the Lord. (laughs) Pretty quickly it turns to like Corinth. You know, where it just gets really nasty really quick. And that's what we read. We just read our text from Corinth, from Paul's letter to Corinth. And he refers to Israel. And when he refers to Israel, he talks about Mount Sinai and what happens with idolatry at Mount Sinai as God is trying to form the covenant with the people. It's an amazing moment. So let's, that's worship. If, If we can picture that, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be in a place where we can trust him so much that I don't have to worry about me. I don't have to worry about me. I can just trust God and seek God. And when it comes to other people, it becomes a lot easier to love and honor other people when I don't have to worry about me. We're not in negotiations about what you get and I get. Instead, we're all interested in what God gets. And that's the way it should be, right? I mean, we can all agree to the fact that's the way it should be. We can also all agree to the fact that that's not the way that we live, you know, that we struggle on this level, and, and we struggle to not be God in our own life and want this. or want, like We all struggle with this. This is sin. This is fallenness. This is brokenness. And we yearn and desire for the day when all of us can just full-heartedly seek the Lord together. Man, will that be awesome. That's worship. That's a culture of worship. And what we want in this series, what we're doing is exposing the fact that, okay, God, we realize we're not there. Please, by your body broken and your bloodshed, would you bring us more fully into the other reality, the big reality, the reality of your kingdom? That's what we want. So let's name a little bit what happens with idolatry as opposed to worship. Idolatry starts with the other side of it, where, where worship says everything comes from God and all I need is to seek him. Idolatry starts with me wanting something else. It's real simple. I just want more. I want something else. I want something different. I want something more. And this idol, what the lie of the idol is, is it always comes in and tells me that it's going to serve me. It's for me. The funny thing is, is God doesn't ever say that. You know, God never said, I, God, exist for you. <laughs> never. He's God. He created us. He says, you exist for me. And the rules of this relationship are the rules of reality. And reality is this, that I created you. And so if you want a relationship with me, you have to deal with the reality because this is real me. I'm the one who it all started with. So therefore, you have to be in a posture of worship for this thing to work. This isn't God who needs his back scratched or patted by us. It's God who deals with truth and reality. And the reality is, is we're his kids, we're his creatures, we're the ones who come underneath, and that's the posture of our relationship with him. But idolatry offers us something different, supposedly. What it says is, here's a God who's manageable. Here's a God who's a little more tame. Here's a God who gives you what you want. You know, here's a God who you don't have to serve, but it will serve you. You might have to do a little something here, that's about it. You know, you might have to do this little thing, but it'll give you what you want. You're the one in charge. You tell it what you want and it'll help you out, you know, and that's, it's a much more manageable thing. And idols are like, there's no end to the amount of idols there are. Endless, endless idols, you know, idols are, because we can make an idol out of any, I can make an idol out of that chair. As a matter of fact, 
when I thought of that, I just thought of, as soon as I thought of that, I, I thought of, you remember, um, it was just a couple months ago, it was actually when I was overseas, um, that in Lansdale, there was that person who was shot in a church. Remember that? Remember what they were shot for? And they were shot because they were fighting over whose seat it was in church. That's their fighting over. I can make an idol out of a chair. As soon as I said it's an idol out of a chair, I'm like, yeah, we've done that. You know, idol out of a chair. We can make an idol out of anything. Honestly, I can anything at all. Whatever it is that causes me to compromise who God is and how I serve him because I want that thing, that becomes an idol. And so the idol says to me, go ahead. I got what you need right here. You can have it for free. This is what idols always say. They always say, you can have everything you need. You'll be really happy and you can have it for free. But in the end, they always cost us everything and they give us nothing. You know what God does though, is he says, I require everything of you. I require your complete and total allegiance. And in reward for that, you get nothing. All that is is the truth in the reality. We're not making a contract here. I'm not saying I will give you this if you give me everything. He's saying, I'm God. You have to give me everything. Whether you like it or not, one day everyone will. But if you submit to that reality, and if you come under that reality, it will change everything. And in the end, God will give us everything for free. An idol says, here's everything for free, takes everything, leaves me with nothing. God says, I require everything of you. There's no reward for it. But in the end, in the end, we find out who God is. And once we enter into him, we realize we ended up with everything because God is all things that we need. And so by getting him, we get it all. That's all we need and all we want is him. And he gives us everything. That's the culture of worship versus the culture of idolatry. Idolatry always seeks to divide our heart and to get us seeking things other than God. That's its aim. And, and, and it always seeks that for us. Idolatry, I think, in its essence, um, is, is when we reduce God to something that we want. When we reduce God to the kind of God that we want him to be. Let me explain this for a second because I, there's a little bit of a misconception, I think, around idolatry. Idolatry, by and large, is the breakage of the second commandment. Um, there's a difference between breaking the first commandment and breaking the second commandment. What's the, the first commandment? That's was, was hard. Everybody's kind of mumbling it. Someone shout it out. I want to hear it. <laughs> Okay, so the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, and in the Ten Commandments, the first one is, that that comes from is, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Secondarily, then, you shall not make any graven image of God. Let's look at the text here of Exodus 32. Where's Moses right now? He's up on Mount Sinai. And he's been there for a long time, like 40 days. 40 days is a long time. When you think about like just a person being gone. You know, there, it's been over a month 
that he's been gone and they've been sitting down there. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, delay means we got held back is longer than it should be, right? Whose opinion is it that he was delayed? When the people saw that he was delayed. That's not what God saw. That's what they saw. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he was not coming down. He left us hanging here. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, listen to the command that they give to Aaron. Up. <laughs> Love that. Just up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Who brought them up out of Egypt? God. Why do they think Moses is delayed? Because they think that Moses is the one that brought them out of Egypt. And so they're depending on Moses instead of depending on God. And when he's not there, oh, to move on to something else, you know. As for this Moses, we don't know about him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your ear, in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and, and they said These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They just made it. And yet it was the thing that brought him up out of the land of Egypt. How can that work? First of all, before we go into it, where did the gold come from? It was in their ears and everything. Where did they get the jewelry from? Egypt. They were just slaves, and now they have a bunch of gold. So it came from Egyptians, but it didn't really come from Egyptians. Who did it come from? God. God gave it to them. This is their parting gift. He's like, hey, you know what's really cool? I'm not just going to take you out of here. I'm going to give you all their wealth too. Here, take it. And he gives them a present, this spectacular present. And this present now is used for false worship, for false worship, right? It's amazing how this gift that they were just given in freedom to worship God is now being turned around. Oftentimes the very blessings that God gives us are the things that we turn into idols. And then we give credit to them pretty easily. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, listen to what he said, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. Look at that word, Lord. Oh, don't look at it up on the screen. Look at it in your Bible. Because <laughs> it doesn't say it right on the screen, actually. Tomorrow, yeah, it doesn't say it right on this. On, on, if you look in your Bible, is that lowercase or uppercase? Uppercase. On the screen, it's lowercase, but it's uppercase. What does that mean? That's the proper name for God. He says, tomorrow will be a feast to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Their feast is not to the idol. Their feast is not to Moses. Their feast is to Yahweh. They're still worshiping, quote unquote, Yahweh here. The problem is, is that they've made an image because they want something to worship and they can't find the thing to hold on to. They can't find Moses and they can't find security in their new land that they're supposed to be in. So they want something to hold on to. So they feel insecure. So they take all the gifts, the blessings that God's given them and they fashion them into something that works for them and they make an idol and they begin to worship that thing. But it's still a festival unto the Lord. Here's how it works in, in Christianity. You don't have to worship Buddha. 
You don't have to worship Vishnu. You don't have to worship, you don't have to, you know, follow Muhammad in order to have a false god. That would be if I take the name of Jesus and I substitute it with another name. That means that I, if I say I worship Buddha or I worship, I worship uh, Vishnu instead of worshiping Jesus, that's saying there are other gods before him. However, if I say I worship Christ, but I reduce Christ to something that I want him to be, then I've made an idol. And so when they made the golden calf, what they were doing was, is it wasn't rejection of Yahweh, the name of Yahweh, it was rejection of the ways and the truth and the reality of who Yahweh, who Jehovah actually was. And this is what happens to us when it comes to idolatry for each and every one of us. The struggle is, this is the struggle, is that we are so tempted by other things in our lives that we want our faith and our worship of God to somehow submit into a form that can still allow me to go after things that I should let go of, that I have to let go of. But I choose not to let go of those things and I find a way in my head to justify those things while I'm still under the head of Christianity. That is idolatry. That is reducing God to something that he's not. And this is why all the passages in the beginning where Bill Hybels, that one, that one quote that he said, is it's so much easier to change God than it is to submit to his will, to conform to his will. That's idolatry. Man, I want to change what the scriptures say. I want to take certain parts of what the scriptures say and say those aren't really relevant for me today. I want to say that whole thing. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, I mean, like, I'm doing my best with that, but I really want this, and I, I really like holding on to this and being upset about this, even though he says to forgive. And I know I, I really should be talking better over here, but, but you know, and, and, we, and we take all the commands, the, the things of the covenant of God, and we find a way to say, eh, it's not that big of a deal. So here it is, from cover to cover. Idolatry is the thing that we have to sacrifice, that we have to give up in order to worship God. We have to tear down the, the Asherah poles. We have to break down the altars to Baal. We have to get rid of all that stuff and come before the Lord. And we can never worship the Lord perfectly on our own. We can't do it. But what we can do is say, God, cleanse us of our idols. Cleanse us of our idols. And unless I'm willing to give that over to him, then I can't have the full connection of worship with God. Typically what stands in the way of my deep connection with God is the fact that there is something that I'm wanting more than God. And I'm reducing him to fit that. I get a divided heart. But God promises that he can give us an undivided heart if we ask him for it. So let's go into a time of prayer. And as we do, we're going to ask the Lord to give us an undivided heart. Jesus, we recognize right now that we are, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. Chances are, whatever, this, whatever the idolatry is in each and one of our lives, we probably don't recognize it. I know that um, you know what you've walked me through this week and how easily it is how easy it is for, for us to be deceived and not understand and not see it. God, I just ask that by your grace, you would expose to us 
What are the things that we feel the need to hold on to, that we chase and that we can't imagine letting go of, and that if you asked us to give it up, we can't fathom it, and that worship of you is in the context of, okay, I'll give you everything, but just don't take this from me. Or I'll get to that time with you, God, but after I do this, I know I have to make some sacrifices for this thing here, but you understand. Whatever that is, God, expose it to us, show it to us so that we can give it to you, so we can be released, so we can worship you. In the name of Jesus.